November 2020 saw the most controversial and most closely watched US election possibly in history. Yet, a global pandemic and heightened security fears meant that fewer people than ever were on site at the US Capitol. This left news producers like the UK's ITN with a conundrum. How were they going to produce the flagship output for ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5 without flying large production crews westward across the Atlantic? The answer was to stream their camera feeds eastward to the broadcaster's headquarters in London, where the programmes were mixed. But was this just a symptom of coronavirus, or was it a taste of the future? Welcome to episode three of the DPP podcast. I'm the DPP's CTO, Rowan de Pomeray. And I'm the CEO for DPP. I'm Mark Harrison. Well, Rowan, uh, it's great to be back with you on this. It's been a while since we did the last one. It has. And uh, some of the reason we've been so busy is that you have been writing a report called Live Remote Production. So maybe that's why you just gave that intro you just gave. Yes, indeed. It's a fascinating topic and we had some really remarkable input from uh, different member companies. Um, if you haven't read it, of course, go download it from the DPP website. Well, yeah, it's a terrific report. I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you so much to you and all the great people who helped you to create it. Um, but there's a few things I would just love to be able to ask you about it uh, now that it's out there in the world. Um, I do the first one is about the whole language around live remote production. I mean, it's a complete sort of jargon spaghetti, isn't it? Oh, honestly, I can't tell you how much it is a jargon spaghetti. I, I went into this feeling like, you know, an outsider, right? My, my background is not particularly in live production. And I'd come across all of these terms like um, at-home production and home-run production and Remy and... Uh, I, I was really struggling to work out where the lines are drawn between these different things. You know, what exactly is Remy, for example? Well, I've got, got a confession to make, which is that I don't think I heard the term Remy until only really? about maybe two years ago. And then suddenly yeah. everybody from the States that I spoke to was talking about Remy. I actually had to look it up. Completely the same as me. Uh, and you're right, it seems to be more of a stateside thing. But we had a bunch of US contributors in in this work. And, uh, you know, people could tell me that it, it stands for remote integration. Uh, they they could tell me that it, it involved sort of processing things off site from the production. But actually, even most of our contributors couldn't describe to me the difference between these different models and, and how Remy sort of sits as a subset of remote production generally and, and which elements of the production would be where. Mm, so right. it was a real challenge to understand what people were talking about. I guess that sort of became a central part of this work, didn't it, to try and actually make some sense of all the different kinds of things that actually we're just currently lumping under this general term of, of remote live production. Um, but, you know, before we get into some of those kind of distinctions that you found, I've, I've got to ask you, you know, you, you referred in your intro to uh, the symptoms of coronavirus. One of the symptoms of coronavirus, this kind of, this kind of assumption that the things we had to do last year because we had no choice are somehow going to be the things we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives. And then actually, live remote production will be the thing we all obsessed about 
in 2020 and maybe the first few months of 2021. But in fact, it's going to kind of go away with the vaccination program and we're going to return to a world of enormous outside broadcast vehicles and hundreds <laughs> of people on site the moment that we can. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, the clue is is sort of in your own background there about, about when you heard the term Remy, right? That was a couple of years ago. And, and this has been a hot topic since well before the pandemic. So the short answer is no, I don't think this is just a, a COVID um, a response. Um, you know, like so many things, the pandemic accelerated perhaps a, an existing trend. But I do think that there is there is definitely a notable difference between some of the models we sort of deployed last year um, and, and now uh, and those that will be dominant in the future. So, you know, we did, uh, as we went through defining these different models, we did find that, you know, for example, uh, remote controlled production um, and some of the distributed production elements, these are things that people have really majored on over the last 12 months because they enable you to to, to improve social distancing or to have people working from home, that doesn't mean that those will be the models that are used in the future. So, you know, I think what we've seen over the last year will change as people are able to get back into uh, you know, locations with their colleagues. But, um, but I don't think the remote production as an overall trend is going to go anywhere. It's something that people have been really keen on for for longer than the pandemic has been with us. Oh, okay, okay, I, I get that. So, uh, so for instance, kind of distributed live remote production, like everybody everywhere, different members of the team and in their own houses and so forth. That's not going to stay, is it? I think it'll it'll stay, but at a lower level than we're seeing it right now. You know, there absolutely were contributors who talked passionately about how that kind of model enabled them to get access to the best talent, no matter where they are in the world. But there were just as many who spoke about how difficult it is to to get real creative collaboration going when when you're doing it all remotely and, and online. So, you know, I think we're gonna see. Uh, a shift more towards things like centralized production, whereby we're placing the production team in one location, uh, but like at the broadcaster's headquarters or the production company's uh, hub location rather than on site where the content is being acquired. So yeah, getting teams back together is definitely going to be something that we'll see more of, but I, I think there'll be some distributed as well. It depends on the type of content. Yeah, but that is really interesting, isn't it? Because, because that suggests that that what people are taking out from this experience are, are some of the some of the other benefits, and maybe we can come on to those. Um, but actually, they do still want to put teams together, like creatively and logistically. There are still huge benefits of being able to look across a room, see your colleague, make hand signals, all that kind of stuff that goes on when you're in a really fast-moving live event, yeah? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think perhaps what people have, have um, been able to analyse in a little bit more depth is which of those roles need to be together. Um, you know, somebody said to me, you know, it, it doesn't really make any difference if you're uh, the, the production team in the gallery uh, 
a thousand miles away from the camera operators because ultimately, you know, even in an on-site OB, that production team, they're all shut away in the OB truck, right? They're not in line of sight with the camera ops, but the director and the vision mixer being in the same room and being able to kind of glance at each other. Yeah, there's, there's a definite kind of immediate feedback loop that you get there that is hard to replicate when they're both sat at home. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So what about the other kind of benefits that are coming out that 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 are making people feel like they want to do things differently from here on? Yeah, I think, you know, mostly those sit with the sort of the big outside broadcast, right? It's very natural. And, and actually, we're already doing it in this conversation to think of the sort of the big sports productions and that kind of thing yeah. when you're thinking about live production. Um and those are the ones really where the biggest benefits are, are likely to lie. So you're looking at, you know, far less travel. Um, and there's a whole bunch of benefits that come with that. You look at what Formula One have done with their their recent moves to um, to build technical centers at, at their headquarters. They've reduced their freight shipping by 34%. Yeah. Think of both the cost savings and the carbon savings of doing that, right? These are massive um, and so they're they're doing this for environmental sustainability and, and for cost reasons. But it also means, you know, think of a, a broadcaster who's covering a lot of different types of, of content or, you know, a lot of different outputs. Um, they can get much greater utilization of both their equipment and their people if they're not having to ship those things from one location to another. You know, if I'm flying my production team and my vision mixer crate and my audio mixer crate from, you know, one stadium to another, then I can only be looking at one event per day, uh, at most probably one per week. Yeah. Um, you know, I I have just to focus that team and that kit on that one thing. And if I've got another event going on, you know, six hours later, then I'm going to need another team, another set of kit to cover that. Whereas if actually it's all done centrally in my broadcast center, then I could have a production team who are producing a football match in the morning and a, you know, tennis in the afternoon or, or, or whatever it happens to be. So there's there's real improvements in, in utilization as well as simply the, the cost of shipping and that kind of thing. And then weird little ones that you might not have thought of, like uh, um, if you're not shipping equipment around the world, um, then it's getting far less wear and tear. We had people telling us that, you know, where they are still using hardware, that it lasts a lot longer when when they've centralized that hardware rather than sticking it in an OB truck. Oh, I love that. I love that. Actually, there's those kinds of unforeseen benefits that come out. Yeah. yeah. Were, were there other things that, you know, hadn't really occurred to you that came out in the course of this work? Yeah, definitely. The I mean, the other one that springs to mind straight away is the flexibility afforded to you when you've got, uh, a requirement for less kit on site. So, you know, if you are um, doing a centralized production where you're shipping back all of your camera feeds to your to your production hub in order to, to do most of the production work there, then you don't need such a big outside broadcast truck. You might just need, you know, a, a, almost like a, um, you know, satellite news gathering type vehicle right. um, or at least a half size truck. And and it's obvious that that's going to save you some money. What what isn't immediately so obvious, at least to me, was that means you can go places you couldn't go before. Mm. You can park in car parks that had less space than you needed before because you're physically taking up less space. You've got less weight on the road, all of that kind of thing. So yeah, there, there's there's a bit of flexibility that you gain as well as sort of saving costs. And I guess that's a bit of a hint, actually, the other aspect of all this, isn't it? Because we are talking at the moment about something kind of eye-watering 
savings and benefits that really big productions can get if they are able to centralize but but similarly um if you're if you're quite a small operation or you're covering a a lower budget or a more niche event then the very prospect of having to head abroad um with all your team to go and do it sort of probably is the thing that makes that impossible yeah could, could be cost prohibitive could be time prohibitive uh, i mean you're absolutely right and I think this is where you get in some of the sort of the nuances of the different type of content and and what remote production will mean to them. So, you know, we opened this with a discussion about a particular news event, but actually, you know, news is an area that I see probably evolving less than most because, you know, remote contributors coming in from all over the world has been standard practice in news for decades. Whereas, you know, producing centrally from a a studio, anchoring a, a bulletin from a, a, a central studio location, I don't see that going away anytime soon, right? The the kind of distributed production of having people working from home and that kind of thing very much has been a response to the pandemic. But as you say, you know, you look at um, events coverage or, or some just, you know, smaller um, uh, content producers, they're able to do things that just simply weren't possible a few years ago. And and a lot of that becomes enabled by software tools, by cloud tools that enable you to to use a, a virtualized um, uh, production infrastructure. Um, and that just means that you've got way more flexibility than you ever had before. So, you know, we got into really interesting discussions about, you know, where hardware is still required and where the software tools are developing and, uh, you know, what that's going to do to the capabilities the production teams have. It's a, a really interesting area. So, so was there a real sense that... We're actually going to get more live production now because these kinds of developments actually make make it more feasible to cover more events more affordably. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think you know there's been an overall growth in live, right? So, so you know, outside of sort of sports and news and, and big professional content, you know, we've seen a huge growth in in social live video and corporate live video and so on. And, and I know that you're going to be looking into that in a, an upcoming DPP report. Um, but uh, but I think that the lower sort of barriers to entry, the lower cost of entry, um, the, the greater flexibility that you have with, you know, some of the software vision mixing tools or cloud-based production tools and so on do absolutely mean that that more content can be covered uh, by more organizations. And, and I definitely think that we're going to see an impact in the outputs that are available to viewers. I just wonder, though, if there'll be a kind of polarization where, you know, it will enable a sort of greater range of, of lower cost events. But back at the at that kind of classic top end of like live sport, you know, really major national and international events or the kind of big entertainment shows you know is there always this this emphasis upon kind of doing more and doing better over efficiency you know i i I, a pivotal moment for me in my career was uh many years ago when i was running the arts department at the bbc and and, um, we were doing some some drama documentaries right and I went to see the then controller of BBC One and uh, and I said to him, yeah, and the thing is, you know, we can do this. We can do these documents for only £400,000 an episode. 
And he's looked at me and said, why would I want cheap drama? <laughs> and, and I thought, actually, you know, you're right. You're BBC One. And um, is there something similar here about kind of major live events that, that the whole point of them is not to be cost effective and efficient? The whole point of them is to be mega. Uh, I mean, yes and no. I, I mean, absolutely. You know, nobody wants to cut corners when it comes to this high-profile, high-quality content. Um, and, you know, let me be clear, there was a great deal of frustration expressed at some of these software tools and, and their shortcomings. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you go back and listen to the or watch the webcast that we did on this topic... You know, Kevin McHugh at Sky talking about their use of vMix for for some of their sort of you know news and discussion programs, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, they they've delivered broadcast quality outputs using these tools. I don't expect them to stop doing that. And and actually, you know, as these tools progress and improve, I think we'll see more and more of it. I you know, it's where you can get efficiency so that you can spend that money elsewhere or do something better than great. I don't think we'll see them cutting corners um, and cutting costs unnecessarily to achieve that. Right. So it actually might be that thing that people always say about, well, we're going to put the money on the screen. We're going to have more cameras. We're going to have, you know, bigger, better talent. We're going to have, you know, uh, better graphics. I mean, that mm -hmm. might be true. Yeah, I think that is true. And, you know, I mean, speaking as a consumer of some of this content you know i would always love to see you know better graphics better data representation better analysis um you know i care about that far more than than how the production team are making the program right yeah um so you know i definitely think that that will be a trend but i also think that we we cannot overlook the sustainability element of this um not just because you know we're the dpp and, and we care about sustainability but you know, you look at the sports community, especially, they've been huge, huge, very public commitments to improving sustainability. Um, you know, I'm I'm a sailing fan and, uh, you know, we know that there are all sorts of um, issues with waste in the oceans and, and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, most of the big sailing competitions have made these vast commitments to sustainability and moved to remote production as a way of achieving that. You're seeing the same in motorsport where, you know, whether it's traditional um, uh, competitions like Formula One or whether it's, you know, the new entrants like uh, Extreme E, yeah. they're, they're making big moves to try and reduce their carbon footprint to be seen as good citizens, to 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 use sport as a an agent for change, and and I I think that that in itself is a you know it's a brand enhancer, and therefore is something that people care actually about. this is really interesting, isn't it? Because of course, media companies that um, produce sport events in particular, uh, by definition, have a, a very close and tangible engagement with. The public don't they, with with their audiences, and and they know that those audiences are now starting to ask questions and have expectations around their sustainability performance. So, you know, whereas maybe in the past, sort of what was going on in the background would be would be kind of invisible to to the consumer. The consumer now wants to know, don't they, that this stuff is being produced responsibly? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And and as I say, you know, it's it's about 
uh, not just the the sort of the broadcast output, but but everything to do with some of these competitions. And so, you know, you can't. They're, they're all very tied up together. You know, if if you are Formula One, for example, then a huge amount of what you're shipping around from racetrack to racetrack. Yeah, of course, there's the the cars and the teams, but actually, there's there's a huge amount that goes with the broadcast outputs. And so, you know, it, they are very closely tied in together. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that really stood out for me uh, in your report actually was was the discussion of audio, mm-hmm. because I, I I guess we all tend when we think about live content to immediately think of the pictures, yeah. But, but probably in in this world of of trying to separate out you know, the various processes, um, audio not not just the sound from the event, but actually audio communication between people in the team is in fact one of the biggest challenges. Hugely important. Um, I mean, to be a little bit sort of oversimplistic about this, you, you've you basically got a relationship whereby the bandwidth available to you uh, constrains what you can do with video and the latency that you have constrains what you can do with audio. Um, you know, if you have too big a delay in shifting signals from one location to another, that creates real problems, especially as you say, with with sort of intercom, with communications within the uh, the production team. So, you know, it might be absolutely fine to have um, a, a gallery in London producing an event that's in Paris, but if that event was in Sydney and you needed, you know, two way feedback between the the team in London and the camera operators in in Sydney. And it's a fast moving event with cars going at 200 miles an hour or balls being kicked down a football pitch. You know, like you need that really rapid turnaround for this. And it, it was very, very interesting that we had probably more discussion and more concern about the audio elements of of all of this than than the video elements. And it was pretty heavily biased towards that that communication within the production team. That's that's really really interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I sometimes I get the sense that uh, that live content making is kind of all that really matters in our business. I mean, what what I what I mean by that is that pretty much every every technology trend and production challenge you can think of seems to get kind of foregrounded in, in the world of live content making before anywhere else. So I guess is why everybody's so fascinated by it. Yeah, I think I mean there's there's obviously just a simply an excitement involved in live content production. But but you're right, you know, it, if, again, if I if I make the parallel, it's the same as developments that apply to Formula One cars or America's Cup yachts. They they filter down to the consumer products. The same is pretty true in um, in in broadcasting. I think you're right that a lot of the the developments happen first in live. Whether that's you know higher resolution cameras, higher frame rates, kind of crazy remote production technologies, um, we do very often see this world blazing a trail that is 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 then sort of filtered down to the rest of us, as it were. Okay, so look, we must wrap up soon, but um, of course, I've got to ask you, you know. W- which trends do you think are really here to stay and where is all this going? We talked at the beginning about how perhaps some aspects of the way you've been working around live production have been specific to 
the pandemic and some are going to go on but but where would you place your bets Rowan? It's a fascinating question and you know when we went through the process of of building this report, um, it became clear that we needed to define these models so that people could understand what we were talking about with with different types of remote production. And an awful lot flowed from that, you know, which ones are best for which kind of creative uh, requirements or which ones are going to work best when you've got constrained bandwidth or constrained latency. But absolutely, one of the most interesting things that came out of it was a very clear view from our contributors as to which of these models will grow and which of these models will shrink in usage over time. So, you know, it is worth saying that regular, on-site, not at all remote live production, it is going to shrink as remote grows, but it's still going to remain very important. I think, you know, betting against that would be unwise. Um, the the interesting ones are things like uh, what we've called remote controlled production, what some people call remote surface and, and so on. Um, this is seen by an awful lot of people as kind of a transitionary model, right? It's it's useful for now. Um, it's useful when you want to, you know, uh, make the best of investments in um, OB trucks that you already own or when you just want to get a few people off site because of COVID. Um, but it's I would not bet on it as a long term sort of strategy for many organizations. The ones that really stand out for me, centralized production, these big, um, you know, particularly sports events, I think we're going to see this as an, an absolutely dominant model going forward. I would place money on that. Um, that, you know, you take a Sky, for example, if they can bring the camera feeds from a particular event back to Osterley in West London, where they're based, and produce the show there, that is far more efficient for them. It gives them more creative freedom. Um, and I think that is going to be their preferred model going forward. And then in parallel with that, you can't overlook the cloud. A lot of the other types of content where they're looking for a bit more flexibility um, and uh, where you do want people distributed in multiple locations, you know, realistically, the way that that will be facilitated is by putting as much of your processing as possible in the cloud. And as these software tools develop and become more capable, that's going to be a really important model as well. So what for me, it's about cloud and centralized. So, so cloud will be really big in what, about 2040? <laughs> I think it's starting to grow now. Uh, I think we're going to see it sort of, it's a little bit sort of bottom up versus top down, right? I think that the the big high budget, high profile events, they're going to be centralized. Um, a lot of the, the smaller events, a lot of the digital first outputs, that kind of thing will be done in the cloud. But don't get me wrong, uh, you know, these the big guys are looking at the cloud as well, and, and it will start to play a, a bigger and bigger role in everybody's workflows. And I guess we might see uh, the building not so much now of of big glossy studio complexes actually, but but in fact, sort of big central control centers. I mean, there could be a great time ahead in the next few years for systems integrators. For sure. And and actually, you know, you look at um, a number of uh, broadcasters are doing things like building hubs in different locations around the country. So, you know, whether this is Fox Sports in Australia with their kind of Sydney and Melbourne or whether this is BT Sport in the UK who are building these little sites all around the country to ensure that they can get talent into their facilities but not necessarily have to bring them all to the capital city or whatever. Um, 
you know, getting people on site to give them the best experience, the best quality equipment, maybe sit them alongside some of their colleagues, um, but in a in a pretty different way to what we've seen historically. And and uh, as you say, that that needs new facilities. I think I'd I'd be more interested in uh, betting on on the building of those kind of facilities than on big scale OB trucks going forward. But there you go. You see, the conclusion is that one of the effects of having everybody working at home for a year is we're going to end up building more buildings. Excellent. (laughs) Well, look, thank you so much. I mean, I think it's a really great report and uh, I really enjoyed reading it. And of course, it's the first of three in this area, isn't it? Because um, we're also going to be taking a look, as you mentioned earlier, at the whole business of live content making, where it's heading. Um, We've just begun researching some of that now and it's I can tell you it's it's completely fascinating the areas of real growth in terms of activity and revenue um, are quite surprising I'll just show that little teaser out there and the third piece is going to be about the working cultures that are now evolving around these um, new ways of, of operating and uh, yeah that's interesting too isn't it because th- that that also came up for us pre-pandemic, already we found that senior leaders were saying that they saw a really major reason for changing how they did live production to be around having a, a kind of a lifestyle and an access to to talent that was more conducive, that didn't mean sending people off the road for months on end. Completely. It's it's a huge cultural shift, right? There is a whole subculture around uh, live production at the moment, which is, you know, production teams that are used to spending half their lives on the road that are used to, you know, the, the sort of the camaraderie, I guess, of, of that culture, but also to being away from home for, for huge stretches. Um, to to being in these really high pressure environments, it's a very different world. If you are going in to essentially an office, sure, it might be a you know production control room, but but essentially just an office, making a program and then being home to tuck your kids into bed at night. Um, and there are people who are going to love that. There are people who are going to mourn the loss of an old way of working but there is no doubt that there's a direction of travel there and it was it was something that came up repeatedly in in this report and uh we we sort of deliberately steered away from it because we felt that it was worth a separate discussion in a separate report so i'm really interested to see uh, how that unfolds because it's it's very heavily interlinked with the stuff that i've been looking into Okay, that's us done. Um, and to say that we'll be back again in, uh, well, we're not quite sure how long, maybe just two or three weeks' time, because another big piece of work has just landed this time that I've written about innovation. Uh, and it might be worth just digging into some of the really intriguing aspects to that too. Excellent. Well, uh, next time I'll be asking you the questions then, Mark. I'm looking forward to it. And thank you for joining us for another DPP podcast. We'll see you soon. Thank you.